It's an honor to be here with you today. My name is Zach Ward. For those of you who haven't met me, I'm still relatively new. My wife and I have relocated from the state of Washington about 1,600 miles away to serve as the minister of students and family within the church. And so if I haven't met you yet, uh, I'd like the opportunity to meet you afterwards. Um, If you're worshiping with us here or if you're worshiping with us online, it's an honor to have you, and we are great to have you in our service. The text that we're going to be reading from is from Matthew 28, 19. If you want to take your Bibles and flip to Matthew 28, 19, or if you have a device, some people use that a lot now, Matthew 28, 19, and we'll try to put it up on the board here for you. Before I get going today, I just want to stop and take a moment to pray. Um, And I want to echo uh, Pastor Chad as he, uh, as as I'm in relief of him pinch hitting today, and this will not be the last sports reference, I I assure you throughout the course of this. So I apologize immediately if that's just not your thing. But as I'm pinch hitting today and Pastor Chad's uh, taking a break, I want to reiterate, it's been a heavy week, Uh, a lot going on within our country a lot going on within our nation, a lot going on with some of us locally in the church. A lot of us are having, you know, health issues, family issues, and different things. So I just want to take a moment to stop and and just seek God's voice in that, if you'll pray with me. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to come and worship together. I do not take that lightly, and I don't think we do as as a nation, as a congregation, to be able to still gather and to praise your name publicly and just declare that you're the Lord of all nations. You're the king of everything. And I thank you for that. Even though we don't understand fully what's going on in the country, we don't understand fully what's going on in our nation, we don't fully understand what's going on maybe in our own lives, we understand that you're sovereign over it all and you're the king of everything. And I just want to give that to you today. And I just want to let that go. We all have come here today to worship with things that we're dragging with us. And I just ask that we will leave it at the altar today. And we will just learn what we need to learn from you and that we will go as we talk about discipleship today, that we will come out of here renewed and wanting to walk in your ways and be disciples of Jesus. I just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you've been with us all summer, we have been in a series dealing with spiritual warfare. Pastor Chad has been walking us through Ephesians 6, and we've been going through, and Paul paints a great picture of what it's like to don on the armor of God. Paul promises us that we're going to be involved in a battle. So to take on the life of a Christian, to follow Jesus, you are expecting a battle to come. We talked about it in the first week. We have signed on for that battle. Here's the deal. If you choose not to walk out the Christian life, if you choose not to accept Jesus, the battle will come regardless. It's not as if you are signing on for something that's not already coming. There is going to be a battle. There's a battle for your heart that's raging right now. The promise that is, when you become a Christian, when you step into fellowship, when you ask to follow Jesus, the difference is is that he gives us tools. He gives us assurance He adorns us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us that that lives inside of us, that allows us to walk fully in his ways. He also provides us all the armor we talked about. I saw some of the kids walking around with a belt out. They were doing the belt of truth. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness. We've talked about helmets. We've talked about swords. We've talked about defensive tools, 
and offensive tools. God provides us what we need to face the battles of our life. Amen? Amen. But there's another thing that he provides for us. There's another thing that we are given. And in fact, we are commanded to do. And that's the gift of discipleship. The gift of being in community with others and following Jesus. So we're going to talk about discipleship. What has given me passion to preach on this and to talk about this specifically is when I started working with young people, when I started working with youth, when I started working in the schools, there's a gap that occurs between that young adulthood and going from a youth group to your full adult age, that young adult transitional period, there is a gap within our church. Not just ours, not just the church I came from, but there's a gap that happens nationally. If you're between the ages of 18 and 29, can you raise your hand for me? (laughs) Okay, 18 to 29. There's something that happens. There's a break that happens there. There's a disconnect between how we get the gospel and how we carry it out in that age group because it's, in a, it's a tough age group within our Western culture. And there's a bunch of studies that have been shown as to reasons why. But what it initially breaks down is that there is a discipleship breakdown. The understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to carry that life out and to walk that life out. There's a bunch of research, but what it breaks down to is how are we discipling our young people. So it's passionate for me. I work with young people. As a youth minister, this is something that I I take seriously. How do we transition that to young adulthood? Because it's a tough time. Teenagers are a tough time. If you are somebody who's young, those of you who raised your hands, and are struggling with this, there's a lot of us out there that have. If you're a father, mother, or father of somebody who has taken a break in the faith or stepped away from the faith, I'm with you. I hear you. And we're going to talk about some encouragement that you might be able to look to if your child has taken a break in the faith. But we we want to be a church that disciples our young people. We want to be a a church that encourages us to disciple our families. That is what we're about. That is our passion. So we're going to define that and we're going to talk about the text right here because that is our commandment. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 28, 19, I'm going to read it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Many of us recognize that as the Great Commission. We've been taught that since we were young. This is the last commandment that Jesus has given to his disciples. Jesus' job is essentially done. He's come on this world. He's selected his disciples. He's discipled them, taught them the ways, and has died for our sins, been resurrected, and now he's about to send to the Father to be at the right hand of the Father. Shortly thereafter, he will send the Holy Spirit, who will show up at Pentecost. Jesus' job is essentially in that moment done. He's about to go be raised at the right hand of the Father. So he's now giving his disciples instructions. It's your task. It's your job. You are now going to take on disciples. And those disciples are going to take on more disciples. And those disciples are going to take on more disciples. The chain goes on until all of us here are sitting in the room have been brought to Jesus or potentially discipled in his ways. So our task now, after being discipled, is to go disciple others. That's our job. Now what does the Bible say about discipleship? Let's define it. And every time I make definitions, we want to define that with what the text 
says. What does the Bible say about discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple? Paul, writing to his own disciple, Timothy, says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is Jesus Christ, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. Let's break this text down. He says, Go therefore, my child. Timothy is his disciple. He's giving him instructions. He's saying, Now, from this point, I want you to take on additional disciples. It's your job. And what does he say? As a good, what's the term he uses? Soldier for Christ. Paul recognizes that Timothy is going to have a battle. We are all going to have a battle. We cannot shy away from that. Jesus talks to his disciples in Luke 6.40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. He will be like his teacher. Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you, you are going to take on my ways, and you are going to teach others. In Deuteronomy 6, 7, 9, Jesus actually quotes this multiple times. This is from the Old Testament. You shall teach them talking about your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as the signs on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates He is talking about the commandments and the ways of God. You shall teach them to your children. Think about the context of this. And this is where I'm convicted. I'm to do this when I wake up with my children. I'm supposed to do this when I lie down with my children. When I walk about, when I go about my daily life, I'm supposed to teach them the ways of God. That pretty much encompasses my whole day every day. I'm supposed to do this for my children. This is super convicting for me. Do we always do this? What it means to be a disciple, in short, is to take on the likeness of Jesus Christ and to instill that likeness in others. That's what it means. But here's where the gap happens. The discipleship gap happens. This is why we have a battle for the young person's heart with discipleship. And I said, hold on, I want to make sure my message is clear. It's the battle for the young person's heart, not the young at heart. All right, Ron? Not the young at heart. It's the young person's heart. When the research came out, that's what they specifically said, is they felt like there was a lack of discipleship, a lack of training. They weren't given a task to do, and there was a breakdown of that. I think about my own life, and I'll give you a story that directly talks about discipleship and how ingrained that is. My son, Joey, who's here today, not really listening to me, but he's here. (laughs) He, uh, He and I play a sport. We're baseball players. Last year in March of 2020, we all know COVID and those types of things. We had a lockdown. Washington took it pretty seriously. It was a super lockdown. You couldn't leave your house only for groceries. You couldn't, they had an interstate kind of ban where you couldn't drive across state lines unless you absolutely had to. That was interesting for me because I actually worked in Lewiston, Idaho, but worked in Washington. I called my boss. I'm like, hey, the governor said I'm not allowed to go to work. And he was like, get to work, you know, like, I I don't care what the governor says, get to work. But when that lockdown order came out, I was, I was kind of upset, kind of stressed out about what was going on. So I decided to take Joey up to our baseball field that set up on our hill. And I'm like, hey, we'll go up there. We'll hit some balls. 
well, I'll work this out in my mind. <laughs> Whatever it was, I just wanted to get away from the news and get away from the TV, and I just wanted to go be with my son. Well, as I was standing up there, hitting him balls, and we were working on a specific drill, my, my old coach, who'd coached me through high school, he was building a house above the field. He's now the athletic director for the Clarkston High School. His house, obviously, that building operation stopped. He was no longer, so he was up there kind of lamenting over the fact that his house was being delayed, and he saw us standing there, so he came down to talk to me. I think he was coming down to scout out future, you know, Clarkston school district talent. Sorry, Coach, Wisconsin's a little far away if you're listening to this. So I think he was just coming down to see and visit with us. Well, as I was hitting Joey balls and he was moving and doing drills, he looks at me and he says, he moves like you. And I'm like, well, he has my DNA. Of course he moves like me. And he says, no, he looks, moves. I've coached you for years. It's like a carbon copy. And I'm like, that's kind of neat. You know, as a parent, I thought that was, I kind of had that proud father moment. I'm like, yeah, he actually said something to him and he listened and he applied it. That's, that's a win for me. But it was deeper than that. Not only had he taken on something I told him, he had put it into practice to where it became his movements. It became all of what he did when I asked him to do that. Now, I have coached hundreds of kids, hundreds of baseball kids in the age of Joey, Joey's age. And none of them mimicked me like he did. Why? Because because he was not my student anymore. He was my disciple. He took on my likeness. And that's what we are to do. We need to transfer that discipleship practice. We need to transfer our likeness as Christians onto our young people. And I am passionate about this because my wife has taught children's ministry for years. I have taught youth. We are passionate about this, and we want to transfer that on. But there are three big lies that prohibit us from doing that. Three big lies that the devil and the enemy projects onto us and that we sort of kind of buy into, and we're going to talk about that. I'm going to put up a couple different mission statements that I found from different churches. I just Googled youth mission statements, and I'm not I'm not critiquing the church in any fashion. I just want to put this up here. The first one is partnering with families to help the next generation follow Jesus. Invest in the next generation of young people in significant ways. To engage the next generation, growing them in a relationship with Jesus and community. Partnering with families to raise up the church of tomorrow. Okay, these are good mission statements. I'm I'm not necessarily critiquing them. On the surface, they're fine. But they all say the same thing, and it falls into a big lie and a big problem. It's trying to introduce the idea that your young people, it's not their time yet. It's introducing the idea that I'm established here, I'm a leader at the church, you'll get your opportunity. That's counter the Bible. That's counter how Jesus disciples. That's absolutely opposed to that. It's not that we're doing anything wrong necessarily. We're just sending the wrong message because they are the church right now. They are the church right now. Now granted, our young people have discipleship steps that they must happen, but they are the church right now. And I'll give an illustration as to why Jesus believed that as well. So when we talk about When we talk about Jesus calling his first disciples, when we call about Jesus' discipleship, we have to understand the context of the first century that he walked in. 
We have to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus during that time frame and how we can apply that today. So Jesus calls his first disciples in Matthew 4, 18 through 19. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, see, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. So here's the story. Jesus is walking along the shore, and he sees two sets of brothers, two different sets of boats. On one side, he sees Peter and Andrew, their brothers. He sees John and James, their brothers. And he walks on. In both sets, he says, just a simple word, follow me. And they drop their nets, and they go. We think that's pretty remarkable because we, a lot of times in our Western culture, we like to put up these barriers that cause us from doing that. But it was an honor for them to follow a rabbi. Every, every Jewish person was trying to push their child to follow a rabbi. It was an honor for them in their culture, in their context. Even one that was kind of outside the box like Jesus was sometimes and would have battles with Pharisees, it was an honor for them to follow them. So they immediately left. The other thing that we notice about the difference in the boats is this. Peter and Andrew are by themselves. James and John are with who? Their father. There's a reason for this. There's a cultural reason for this. James and John have not been given over the family business because they are young. They are young men. They are not the 40s-aged bearded men that we see if you watch The Chosen or if you watch you know, any kind of westernized TV that we have. They're not 40-year-old bearded men. As appealing as a 40-year-old bearded man is, they are not of that age. We know this biblically, and we know this because there's some extra Jewish texts that we don't view as canon, but we know this biblically. When, when uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they question him and they say, hey, why, or they come to Peter and question Jesus, they say, hey, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Jesus pays the temple tax for himself and only one other disciple, Peter. Peter is the only one that's married. He's listed in that culture as the only one that married, so we can infer he's probably the oldest. They are young men, all of them. We also know that John writes the book of Revelations late in his life. He would have had to have been around teenage years for that to have happened. They are young men. Their culture did not allow for a 30-year-old rabbi to call a 35-year-old disciple. That would not have worked in their culture. does not work. And it honestly doesn't work in our culture either. So I'm going to break down. There's three schools of Jewish teachings. There's three schools that they go to, and I'm going to break these down for you. The first place that a Jewish, a Jewish person would attend school is called the Beth Sefer. They have these today. It's called the House of the Book. If you are between the ages of five and nine, can you stand up for me? If you're between the ages of five and nine, can you stand up for me? All right. Stand Good. She actually is semi-listening. If you are in this age group... Your job is to memorize the entire Torah, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Memorize the entire Torah. But those of you who have worked in Awana know that they're capable of memorizing some great 
stuff. Because at this age, guess what, guess what their memory's like? Pretty good. Anybody who's worked for, with kids for an extended period of time or had them do memories verses? At this age, they are super sharp. They had to memorize all of this because they didn't have a hand-bound Bible like we have. They had rolled up scrolls that their, that their uh, rabbi would read to them, but they had to memorize it if they were going to understand it. Everyone went through this. This was basic Hebrew education. Thank you. You guys can sit down, please. If you were good, if you had progressed farther, you would go to a secondary school. It's called the Bet Midrash. 10 to 13-year-old. If you're a 10 to 13-year-old, go ahead and stand up for me. 10 to 13. All right. 10 to 13-year-old. You are going to memorize the rest of the Tanakh, which is the entire Hebrew Bible. We're getting on that. The entire Tanakh, you would have to read. The completion percentage for this was about 1 to 10%. You think the dropout rate is high in our schools. It's pretty high in this school. Go ahead and sit down, guys. 1 and 10% completion rate. If you were so inclined, if you were so good in that culture, if you have picked up this information well, you got to the Bet Talmud. 13 and up, 13 to 18, go ahead and stand for me. All right, y'all. Not only do you have the entire Old Testament memorized, but you have the opportunity, if you're chosen, to sit underneath a rabbi and be taught. You have an application to follow a rabbi. Think Harvard. Yale, Princeton in our culture. This is the elite of the elite. Thank you. You guys can go ahead and sit down. This was their educational culture. So what we know about the disciples based on their educational culture is that Jesus chooses 12 of these people who never made it to this stage. Dropouts, right? Dropouts. They weren't good enough to sit under a rabbi by their culture standards. But what we also know about them is they probably had at least the entire Torah memorized. We also know that they're about in this age group. They are young men, capable of memorizing scripture, capable of being molded, capable of taking on other tasks that the rabbi would give you. Jesus was going to implant all of this onto them, and they were going to be able to absorb it and, and apply it and practice it out. How many of you are raising teenagers? Can you get a 16-year-old to do much? Now, double that. Once you get into your 30s, you're pretty much set in your ways. Let's just be honest, right? Right now, I've pretty much determined my worldview, right? To teach me something new, to to try to get my worldview to change, would take a lot. So that's why that age group was the target age group. Now, Matthew, he's kind kind of a... we're not really sure because he was working for the Romans. He had actually had a job, so we're not sure his age. But you've got to understand all of, these young, all of these people were young men. All of them capable of taking on Jesus' mission. All they needed was discipleship. All they needed was discipleship. This is how we view them when we look at through our culture. They're not this. Lie two. Let's move on to the second lie that we're told. The second lie is being near Jesus without understanding his mission is adequate discipleship. Being near Jesus without understanding his mission is adequate discipleship. If I do church on Sundays, 
every Sunday. That is inadequate discipleship. It's not good enough just to show up and listen and absorb. That will not get it done. To be considered a disciple of Jesus, which we are called to be, we have to do more than just consume that. That's not adequate discipleship. What is adequate discipleship is getting engrossed in the word, getting engrossed in church, taking our children and pouring into them. That is adequate discipleship. Being parents who raise up with our children in the morning and teach them the ways. Go to bed with them at night while teaching them the ways. Walking with them, teaching them the ways. This is super convicting to me. I could get my son to look like me and mimic me completely when we're playing a sport. But was I discipling him in the manner that he should be? Was he mimic me in that way? That's super convicting for me. We can't just be near the presence of Jesus without understanding his mission. The proof of that is in the text. Let's go back to Peter. Peter has walked with Jesus for three years. He has been as close to Jesus as anybody has ever been to Jesus. He was, part, he was there for the transfiguration. He was in Jesus' inner circle. But when the rubber hit the road, what do we know happened? He denies him three separate times. Peter still hasn't quite understood the mission of Jesus in that moment. He denies him three separate times. Now, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you don't have, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you don't have John, Peter's actions and acts seem a little odd. They seem a little odd because all of a sudden he steps off as this lion in the first church. But without the book of John, we don't understand he, he's being reinstated. In Mark, it says, at the resurrection, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He was risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going to you before Galilee. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter has stepped out to all but temporarily, has lost hope, walked away from the faith. He went back to fishing. Peter has deserted him. That should give us all hope. Because if we've been somebody who is on the fringes, maybe we're not sure about what Jesus is. Maybe we're sitting there going, I once followed him, but I no longer do. Or maybe I have children who I've raised in the ways and they are not quite following the way I should be. There's hope. There's hope for us. Because if Peter found his way back, if Jesus is able to pull Peter back, he can pull any of us back. There's hope for us. But if Peter cannot understand the mission, Neither, we can get caught in that too. It's super convicting, but we have to do more with our young people. We just do. Line number three. The world and our enemy does not understand discipleship. If you think the world is not trying to disciple your children, I have got some you know, beachfoot property in Mexico to sell you. If you do not think that the world is after the, the education of your children... Think again. Here's a prime example of this. So in the 90s, Nike was really good at this. I still can remember it. It's like ingrained in my soul. Michael Jordan would show up on the TV, right? He would be playing basketball. He'd have his Air Jordans on. He was, you know, he's the greatest of all time. Sorry, LeBron. He's the greatest of all time. 
He's here. He's doing commercials. And the tag logo that goes across the screen is what? Just do it. Just do it. So what does that imply to me as a semi-okay athlete? That regardless of my skill, regardless of my background, regardless of where I came from, I can just do it. If I put in the work, if I put in the effort, if I do everything that's required of me, I can be like Michael Jordan. Just do it. I'm just going to do it. That's the world discipling me. I mean, I went as far as I would put my Walkman on, I would work out really hard, and I was just going to do it. I bought Nikes. That was my thing, right? Just do it. But here's the thing. My athletic ability only went to a certain spot, right? I'm now standing here and I'm not Michael Jordan, right? It only went to a certain spot. And when that house of cards came tumbling down on me, there was no Nike executive to help break my fall. There was no Michael Jordan standing there to help me. I had to come to terms with that on my own. I had been sold something and I had bought it and it wasn't true. You don't think that that's happening today. You live only once, which is technically true, but that's not the implication that it's giving. You live only once. So regardless of what everybody else says or does, do what is best for you. You do you. Egocentrically centered on you. These are phrases that come out. These are part of the commercials. If you watch TV for five seconds, you understand that the world is discipling. Let's hit a nerve with some people. I love teachers. My wife was a teacher. The educational system. Some of us are appalled by what is being introduced to the age group of five to nine. We're appalled by some of the things that they're trying to talk about with our children. Not all school districts, but some. Of course they are. We just talked about it. Your child at five, from the age of five and nine, can remember all kinds of things. Of course they are. Of course they're starting between those ages. Because if I can ingrain it in that age, if I can disciple you at that age, it makes, me, it, makes it harder for me as a parent to turn you back around at 14, 15. Of course they are. The world understands discipleship as well as we do. If we do not, and my dad would say this, I can still hear his voice in my head. If we do not disciple, something else will. If I as a parent do not step in and do this, something else will. I guarantee you it will take up that time and it will take up that space. And I do not do this perfectly. I've admitted to that. Something will take that place. We need to disciple our children. As I end on this note, I want to talk about specifically our family and how we do things. And we're not perfect. But my wife spends a great amount of time with our children in mornings at night discipling our children, trying to teach them the ways. I spend a great amount of time trying to teach our children and instilling these things. There's no guarantee that it'll turn out. And a lot of us have experienced that where our children have stepped away from the faith, maybe taken a break from the faith. There's no guarantee of this. But we're commanded to do it. We're commanded to make disciples of other people. Why not start in our homes? I'm going to ask if you're between the ages of five 
And 18, I want you all to stand up for me. Look around, church. They are the church now. Put them on mission right now. They have skills. Some of them are singing in the choir. Some of them can teach. Some of them can teach younger people. They have all been gifted with the spiritual gifts if they are a believer in Christ. They are the church right now. I'll have you remain standing for a short period of time because I want to pray with you. And as a church, I want to come alongside of you and I ask that you would pray with me as we pray for our current church generation. Though they may be younger, as Paul says to Timothy, do not let anybody look down upon you because you are young. Some of us who are this age are as spiritually mature as new believers that are adults. We are the church now. As a church, would you pray with me as I pray over our young people? Father God, I thank you for the children and the youth in our congregation. I pray for the children and the youth all over the entire nation. I just ask that you would instill them a heart for you, God, and as we uh, as a church will come alongside them and disciple them in the manner in which that they should go. And I just ask that as parents, we will take the opportunity to disciple them the way that they should go. And they will do everything from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed to point them toward you. Now, we are not perfect people. We are not perfect parents. We are not perfect leaders. We are not a perfect church. But I ask that you would, with us, I ask that you would help us to disciple them in a manner that they will be on fire for you. And that they will affect the next generation as they take on disciples of, themselves, of, of their own. And they will carry on your mission. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us, all of us as adults, to feed into our children and feed into our youth and those who are young. And I just ask that you would put us on, on mission to put them on mission as well. I thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. As the praise team comes, this is my challenge to you. What mission can we put our youth on? What mission does God want for us, for our young people? I'm pretty passionate about this topic, but as a church, I'm asking for you to drive the church forward now.